Welcome to the Head to the Bar podcast. What you're about to hear is provided for general information purposes and support only, and it's not legal education, and it's certainly not legal advice. You should independently check the details that we're just about to discuss. Welcome back. In today's discussion, we're going to be talking about the last little bit of the relevant principles in relation to cross-examination. And then we're going to go on and look at two of the privileges that are examinable with the third to be looked at in the next discussion. So in the last chat, we were having a look at the last little bit of cross-examination And we're at the point where I was starting to blend in some of the common law rules. So for the first time, we were not looking just at the Evidence Act. We were also looking back at the common law. And the Chief Examiner has put you on notice that some of those common law rules are still examinable. So I'll take you through those. We were at the point where we were looking at the discussion in um, Jones and Dunkill, and we were going to go back and look at some of those uh, points of evidence that led to the discussion in Brown and Dunn. So in relation to examination in chief, the last few notes, and this was where I left the last discussion, related to a situation where a, a party had finished calling all of the witnesses that they had required And the opponent was left in a situation where they could legitimately claim that the opposing party had failed to call or question a witness who was utterly germane to their case without a reasonable explanation. So the last point that I was discussing was this common law rule in Jones and Dunkill, which was first established with that level of clarity in 1959 and the case referred to at slide 32 where there had been an unexplained failure by a party to give evidence to call witnesses or to tender documents or other evidence, with the upshot being that in appropriate circumstances this could lead to an inference that the uncalled evidence would not have assisted the party. Now, the significance for us is that this rule still applies in civil cases. So if it's said that one of the parties has left themselves vulnerable to such a a warning then either the jury can be warned if there is the jury in the civil case or else the trial judge may be obliged to direct themselves in accordance with that rule. So in civil cases, that applies to both the plaintiff and the defendant. And though it's not in the Evidence Act, it still um, remains relevant and is examinable. And as you may remember from the discussion on the last occasion, it's been superseded in a criminal case by the uh, Jury Directions Act, Section 43, which we'll return to when we look at the Jury Directions Act. So this applies only to the prosecution, not to the defence, entirely as you would expect, because there's no onus whatsoever on the defence to conduct its case in a particular way. But in a relevant case, Section 43 of the Jury Directions Act invites a submission that where the prosecution fails to call or question a witness without providing a reasonable explanation, a direction can be sought under Section 43 by the defence, which would inform the jury that it may conclude the witness would not have assisted the prosecution case. And just for convenience, that final bullet point on the slide points out that the direction will only be given where there's no reasonable explanation. The prosecution is allowed considerable latitude in the way that it conducts its case. So a direction wouldn't be given if there was a reasonable explanation for not calling the witness. And for examples of a reasonable explanation for the prosecution not calling a particular witness, you might consider efforts made by the prosecution to find a witness but unsuccessfully 
or they hadn't previously taken a statement from the witness and they don't know what evidence the witness would give. So that is the um, Jones and Dunkel issue. So when it comes to the civil part of your exam, um, please retain an eye on the old um, common law. When it comes to a civil case, you'd need to, to note Section 43 of the Jury Directions Act, Note that it completely replaces the old common law obligations in Jones and Dunkel and note that it only applies to the prosecution. And further, then it only applies to situations where there's an unexplained failure to call a witness. So it doesn't apply in many cases, but it's still available. And the reason why it's been paired with examination in chief is that typically it involves some forensic attack on the plaintiff or the prosecution, not typically on the defendant or the defence, but it can apply to the defence in a civil case. So that concludes the discussion of examination in chief. As I mentioned in the last discussion, and I'll just repeat to you, if you're starting to look at the Evidence Act for the first time in a while, this part of the Evidence Act is, is strictly matters of procedure. So the rules that we've been looking at in relation to non-leading questions and the way that um, matters, the way that memory might be restored and the way that matters are put um, if it appears that the witness is unfavourable are purely matters of procedure that need to be followed, step one, step two, step three. So the discussion is purely um, what you might have learnt at university being IRAC in terms of issue rule, application, conclusion, there's little nuance, there's little analysis, it's simply matters of procedure akin to criminal procedure or civil procedure. It's not until privilege and then when we move on to credibility that we talk, start talking about the principles of admissibility. So if we're continuing to use the freeway example from the last uh, discussion where I was talking about the trial process being the freeway and some evidence hurtling along and some evidence then being excluded, Please consider the rules of examination-in-chief and cross-examination as being like rules for driving while the evidence is on the freeway. So these are speed limits and that sort of thing. The credibility rules relate to admissibility and exclusion. So they pair quite closely and you're left sort of thinking, well, we talked about cross-examination and putting a prior inconsistent statement to a witness in cross-examination. Why are we revisiting it in credibility, which is what we'll do in our next discussion? And the answer is because these rules are simply of procedure and they govern a followed by B, followed by C with an exception and sometimes there's, you know, some interpolation, whereas credibility is the rule of admissibility or exclusion. So that is back onto the on-ramp and the off-ramp. Now, in relation to cross-examination, many of these um, propositions you may remember from uni, you might have noticed in practice. Uh, cross-examination, the main point is that the cross-examiner is not bound by that significant forensic hurdle of examination-in-chief, which is no leading questions. And in fact, once uh, you have passed this exam and once you've established your practice, your leaders and peers will tell you in cross-examination, usually you wouldn't ask anything except for a leading question, which is a question that's suggestive of its answer. I have noted in this slide the limitations. So, for instance, improper questions can't be asked, questions that are misleading or confusing, unduly annoying, harassing, intimidating, offensive, oppressive, etc., 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 may not be asked whether or not they're objected to, section 41. So there may be a question raised in the running in relation to form. 
Use your best judgment in this regard. If a question feels like it is belittling, if it feels like it's based on a stereotype, based on sex, race, culture, ethnicity, then it probably is, and therefore it's forbidden by the rules of cross-examination, section 41. Now, as you may remember, or this might be the first time you've turned your mind to it, the forensic challenge and um, the commitment that counsel is undertaking during the process of cross-examination is effectively advancing their case by way of putting propositions to each witness called by the opponent that either undermine the strength of the evidence that that witness has given. So there might be questions designed to undermine the strength of the evidence that that witness has given. So they might be about credibility or other. Or alternatively, they might be in order to advance the questioners, the cross-examiner's case. So the two purposes for cross-examination, if the witness has somehow been unfavourable, then questions are put which are suggested to undermine their credibility and to undermine the strength of the evidence that has been given. But the cross-examiner is also under a responsibility to put any positive parts of the case that they wish to during cross-examination. And by positive parts, I mean if eventually the cross-examiner would like to submit to the jury or fact finder at the end that this witness's evidence shouldn't be believed or has been contradicted by another witness or by the accused in a criminal case or there is some other case concept that counsel would like to address the jury upon, then as you may remember, that needs to be put to this witness in cross-examination so that they have an opportunity either to accept it or to contradict it. So part of the cross-examination will relate to principles of credibility and some of it, it may be about contradiction. So if there's another witness who gave a slightly different account that the cross-examiner wants to suggest is, is a, a more likely to be a truthful and accurate one, including the accused, then that's put to the witness during cross-examination. One of the principal methods of undermining credibility in cross-examination is putting a prior inconsistent statement to a witness. And we'll return to the definition of prior inconsistent statement when we look at the credibility rules. But they're pretty easy to recognise and they're pretty straightforward. A prior inconsistent statement is any statement said to have been made by the witness before the door of court. So it's any statement said to have been made by a witness before the door of court. It might be an oral statement. It might be a written statement. But prior means before giving evidence and inconsistent, exactly as the word suggests, indicates that there's some contradiction between the two versions. Now, this is a, in real life a, a pretty topical way of suggesting that the witness has contradicted themselves and therefore their credibility is undermined. It's also a really suitable topic for examination and it's fairly regularly examined because it allows the examiner to talk about matters of procedure, which is the method for cross-examination, allows the examiner to assess credibility rules, which are the rules of admissibility and exclusion. And then lastly, there's always going to be the ghost of the fact that a prior inconsistent statement made out of court is prima facie hearsay because it's a statement made outside court that's being repeated for the jury or the fact finder's consideration inside court. And to cut to the chase, because these propositions are admissible under the credibility rules, Section 60 of the Evidence Act, once we turn to hearsay, tells us 
that the hearsay rule does not apply. Based on my um, reading of the past exam papers, this comes up at least half of the time, a prior inconsistent statement, and you can understand why it's ripe for examination because the examiner gets to assess the procedure, gets to assess the rules of admissibility under the credibility rules, and then gets, there are elephant stars available if the examinee can note that by being admissible under the credibility rules, which we've not yet discussed, but we will, then you get to bypass the hearsay rule altogether. And section 60 indicates that though these statements are hearsay, the hearsay rule doesn't apply because they're admissible under the credibility rules. So let's talk about procedure then. The procedure for putting a prior inconsistent statement to a witness in cross-examination is really one of the statutory vestiges of the rule in Brown and Dunn, which we'll get to in a moment, but just to colloquialise it. In trial practice, you have to stab a witness in the front and not stab a witness in the back. It's a silly analogy, but it's one that people seem to remember. So if you're going to contradict someone, you can't kind of mince around and suggest that uh, indirectly that they're not telling the truth without giving them the opportunity to contradict it. So it's a rule um, of fairness, but this is one of the statutory indicia as to how it's um, effected. So let's say there's a prior inconsistent statement. So it's suggested that the witness has said something different either in their statement that's made before trial or they could have made an oral statement to another witness. So provided that the statement's admissible, which it usually is under the credibility rules, section 43 requires the witness be asked about the facts, okay? The attention should be addressed to the statement. And if there's an inconsistency between what they say about the earlier statement versus their in-court evidence, then under section 43, subsection two, they need the opportunity to clarify or contradict. So it doesn't mean that you have to do that under section 43, but if you don't follow the principles and procedures outlined in 43 and then eventually 44, where it comes to a, an inconsistency with another witness, then it may prevent the adducing of that prior statement via another witness, which I'll get back to in a moment. So a few points to note, my editorial comments. This is a rule of practice that's born out of the rule in Brown and Dunn, which requires as a rule of fairness that the contradiction be put to the witness and the witness be given a chance to explain or qualify it. And it's not obligatory under section 43, but it will operate as a hurdle so that if the statement isn't identified for the witness with reasonable particularity and they're not given an opportunity to explain or contradict it, then it may prevent the cross-examiner from calling other evidence to suggest that the witness had previously made that earlier statement or uh, either oral or in writing. Section 44 is a continuation of, that, uh, of the procedure that deals with the obligation of fairness. So section 44 is a slightly different point. 43 relates to the, this particular witness's earlier statements versus in-court statement. Section 44 relates to the situation where there is an inconsistency between the witness under cross-examination and another witness that either the court has heard from or is to hear from. So let's say there has been a pub brawl and the particular witness said that they will never forget that they saw a particular gentleman wearing a bright red shirt throw the punch. Now, if the next witness has given an indication through their police statement or other that they saw a person with a green and blue striped shirt, 
Section 44 relates to the obligation to give the witness the opportunity to answer a question along the lines of, well, we expect to hear from the next witness that they saw a person with a blue and green striped shirt. Are you sure that the, the shirt was the colour that you described? So 44 is the difference between this witness and witness 2. 43 relates to the situation where the witness comes to court and says it was a bright red shirt when they're giving their evidence, but prior to court they'd said it was a blue and green shirt. So that's the difference between those two provisions. And then once we've had a look at the way that it operates, you'll note that both and each are examples of the rule in Brown and Dunn. That's another one that needs to be um, committed to memory or working memory. So this is the common law origin of the rule that's found in, in those procedural provisions. That is where a party proposes to lead evidence that contradicts or discredits an earlier witness, then an opportunity to reply needs to be given to a particular witness. So that's what I mean when I say that those two provisions, the contemporary vestiges of an overriding common law rule that still exists. So there is a procedure that follows, and you'll note in this slide that that's where it all comes together, uh, the sign of things to come, because we haven't had an opportunity for it all to come together yet. But by slide 36, note here that there's reference to cross-examination on a document, prior inconsistent statements and inconsistencies between witnesses. That's point one. So the 40s are in part two of the Evidence Act, which is matters of procedure. Next. If a document is admitted under one of these rules, it relates to credibility. So that was what I mean when I refer to the principles of credibility, which relate to the admissibility. So the hundreds relate to principles of admissibility. And then lastly, if a document is admitted under these provisions, then it's admitted as an exception to the hearsay rule, and that's section 60. So there the examinable points arising from cross-examination. It's not an exhaustive list, but they're the topics that are um, most likely to be picked up in the examiner's mind. So as I've been suggesting to you as time's gone on, please make sure to dig out each of the examinable provisions, double-check the matters that I've raised and discussed, and you may like to use these slides either as a precedent um, for your own adapted slides or uh, flashcards if you prefer that, you can customise them completely, you can take them as is, or you can just chuck them out and never think of them again. They're just a talking point. Now, the question's been raised. If the witness accepts the prior inconsistent statement, say a text message they sent that is inconsistent, is the text message admitted into evidence or is the admission on the record enough? The answer is the latter. So if there is oral evidence and the text message is produced, the witness is asked to have a look at it, their, their attention is focused on the document so that they're able to identify it. And so much of the inconsistency is put to them as the cross-examiner must do under section 43, it's their answer that becomes the evidence. So did you send that text message where you said something completely different? The answer is yes. In that case, please give me back the copy of the um, text message. We don't need that anymore. So it would only be if, did you send a copy of that text message? Yes, I did, but I didn't mean it, or um, it, that's also a lie. In that case, you tender the text message effectively as an exhibit. That's what's meant by the credibility rules. So it's the prior inconsistent statement that becomes relevant and admissible, but it's only if it's not accepted. So these are mechanisms of proof of the making of the prior inconsistent statement. 
If the witness accepts that they did, you have all you need and you don't need to tender the document as well. But if they don't accept that they made it or they don't accept the inconsistency, then it becomes relevant and admissible as an exhibit of itself. And it is the record that counsel can, at the end of the trial, say, members of the jury, you heard the answers, you saw the demeanour, but look at the exhibit. And there, that's where you see that there's a difference you can take into account in relation to credibility. I trust that answers that question. And if there are any other questions or comments, they're most welcome. So that brings an end to that particular run. And I've always said, and it's probably just wishful thinking, that getting from sort of inertia to getting the first hurdle out of the way is probably the diff most difficult part of any project. So happily, though we're now only two thirtieths of the way into the discussion, at least we've gotten over the hardest increment. And so we're gathering some sort of momentum, I say optimistically and probably misguidedly. Now we're going to look at two privileges, privilege in relation in respect of self-incrimination and matters of state. Um, here I'm going to open up the new set of slides and just for our convenience I'm also going to open up the Evidence Act in case we need to refer to the original text of section 128 which is the privilege against self-incrimination and section 130 which is matters of state. In our next discussion, we're going on to consider client legal privilege, which has a, a few little twists to it. So we're going to have to take a little while over it. And then we'll move on to the credibility rules. And there's quite a few of those. But once you understand the difference between matters of procedure and matters of admissibility, so we've just finished procedure, we've not yet started admissibility in relation to credibility, then the difference is not that great. So in relation to the privilege against self-incrimination, having a look at our very helpful slides, we know that we're going, or I say we, you're going to be examined on questions of privilege against self-incrimination in section 128 at common law. This was so um, straightforward because if the privilege applied, the witness could not be compelled to produce a document, the witness could not be compelled to answer, and that was the end of the discussion. The discussion under the Evidence Act is far more nuanced and that's the reason why it takes some time. I would hazard a guess based on past exam papers that there will be a privilege evaluated at some stage of the um, discussion. Now, whether it is in the civil area or the criminal area, that's obviously a matter that's beyond my control, not reading the um, paper ahead of time, but there will be a privilege question in there somewhere. Note uh, what you may already know or you may not, the Evidence Act applies only to court proceedings. So where I talk about the Evidence Act privileges, I'm talking about the privileges that apply to witnesses in court and sometimes they're adopted where a witness has been subpoenaed but challenges um, even their attendance on the basis of a privilege or other. Note to self that if you're talking about pre-court proceedings, then the common law tends to apply instead of the Evidence Act. So in real life, there's a bit of a difference. Now, Section 128 is the relevant provision of the Evidence Act that relates to the privilege against self-incrimination, and it's not binary as the common law is. There are three potential outcomes of Section 128. So two of them are the common law. So that is that either the witness, witnesses claim for the privilege will uh, be held by a judge to be misguided, and therefore the privilege can't be claimed, so they have to answer. So if it's misguided, then it's the same as common law. It doesn't apply. The witness is compelled to answer. 
The other extreme is, of course, that the privilege is upheld and the witness is not compelled to answer. So one of the other options preserved by Section 128, loud and clear, is that if the privilege is upheld entirely, then the witness is not obliged to answer questions that might incriminate them. But as you may know, the effect of Section 128 is to give the court a third option, and that is that, that a witness who has a legitimate claim to the privilege against self-incrimination in relation to particular answers or generally can be required to give their answers anyway. So just think about that for a moment and let your inner human rights lawyer revolt in disgust. So it could be that they have this important human right being the privilege against self-incrimination. They've invoked that privilege in relation to certain answers. Section 128 permits a trial judge to overrule a legitimate claim for the privilege against self-incrimination and require the witness to give the answer. And in exchange, they can receive a certificate that protects their answers from being used against them in subsequent proceedings. So there are three options in Section 128 as opposed to the two in the common law. I can't help but add, though it's not acutely examinable, it's good for background understanding. In relation to the area of privilege, while we're looking at three, the way that the case law has developed, especially the common law in the early days, was to see privilege as a requirement for a trial judge on each occasion, irrespective of privilege, to balance two competing public policy considerations. So there's always two competing public policy considerations. One is the court's desire to adduce all relevant evidence. So irrespective of whatever the privilege is, whether it's matters of state, whether it's client legal privilege, whether it's the privilege against self-incrimination, the court is always really keen to get the answers if they are relevant to the facts in issue. So there's obviously that public policy to get everything that we could possibly get. Now, on the other hand, each particular privilege has a public policy that countervails against that public policy in favour of admissibility. So in the area of the privilege against self-incrimination, your law lecturers might have taught you that the public policy against requiring a witness to answer questions is based upon um, ancient common law that a person should not be required to contribute to their own prosecution. So it's a fundamental reversal of um, the right to silence that a witness should be compelled to participate in their own prosecution. So that was the genesis of the balancing exercise. It might be thought that the certificate process alleviates that particular concern because though this person is being compelled to answer, they're not being compelled to participate in their own prosecution because if the evidentiary effect of a certificate is their answers are not at risk of implicating them ever, then maybe that concern is alleviated. So I always start a um, privilege conversation by considering the competing public policies. Would you be able to, to incorporate that into an exam answer? No, you probably wouldn't have time and there wouldn't be marks associated with these you know, discussions of the genesis of the common law. Instead, its utility is just to figure out why we would have such a provision whether we should have concerns about the fact that the privilege has been abrogated and modified in such an important respect. All right, so here we go as to the provision. Now, under Section 128, um, certain parts have been highlighted, and I'll draw those to your attention. So 1281 is procedure for invocation. 
firstly, the section applies if a witness objects. So point one is the witness must object to giving the evidence. So if a witness blithely answers, then the section is of no application. And you see that sometimes in trial where a witness might be talking about blah, 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 and then I sold drugs, blah, 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 and there's no objection. There's no invocation of the privilege. 1281 in the strict sense requires a witness to raise their hand and say, I'm concerned about these answers. And really they should get some independent advice before giving their evidence. Now next they can object to giving. Two is particular evidence on or evidence on a particular matter. So this is sort of a more subtle point, which is they can claim the objection globally in relation to all their evidence, but typically it involves particular answers, particular topics. And lastly, it must be on the ground that the evidence may tend to prove one of three things. One is, has committed an Australian offence. So it's committed an Australian crime. Or two is, has committed a foreign crime. So that is a, an offence against a law of a foreign country. Or three is, is liable to a civil penalty. So that there may be some civil consequence from their answers. So they're the three points arising from 1281, we need a witness to object. Two is it can be done piecemeal, it can be done globally. And three is the objection really needs to be that the next answer is going to put me right in, in relation to an Australian crime, a foreign crime or a civil penalty. And then 1282, the court must determine whether or not there are reasonable grounds for the objection. And that's done at voir dire because it's really none of the jury's business. Although the tradition is that often these are done quickly in front of the jury and then on to the next point. It would depend on the procedure. The better practice is that it's done in a voir dire so that the witness can be heard without the jury um, becoming involved in irrelevancies. So next, under subsection three, so here the, the court is considering whether there are reasonable grounds. If the court excludes that there are reasonable grounds, and that could be because maybe the witness has already been convicted of the crime so that they're not at risk of further charge. Maybe, and this is what the common law spoke to, they're claiming the privilege for some collateral purpose, like loyalty to the accused or to another witness. So sometimes you see a witness suddenly say that they're not going to answer anything, but once you start asking, well, why is that? then it could be for some collateral purpose like loyalty. And the co common law also talked about where witnesses have been pardoned or given some sort of letter of comfort or indemnity, they're really not at reasonable grounds of thinking that they're going to be implicated in a, a matter. But let's say that they have been implicated and they've got reasonable grounds for the objection. Here, the court will split. I'll come back to the question in just a minute. So the court has determined there are reasonable grounds. At that point, the court need go no further. So firstly, under 1283, the court's not to require the witness to give the evidence and is to inform the witness. So there are reasonable grounds. And in the next breath, the, the judge needs to say to the witness, witness, you don't need to give this evidence unless I require you to. And I'll get, willingly give you a certificate under this section if you give the evidence without being required to do so. Or if I have to make a determination under subsection 4, I'm going to give you a certificate anyway. And the effect of such a certificate is that certificate will protect you from being prosecuted in relation to the answers that you're just about to give. 
So the effect of 1283 is that the judge must give the witness an explanation of the fact that, look, you've got a claim to the privilege, I'm satisfied of that. You don't have to give the evidence. If you willingly give the evidence without making me determine under 1284, I'm going to give you a certificate now. And you might know from practice that some witnesses will just say, yes, I'm happy with that certificate. Others will dig in and say, no, I'd like a determination under 1284. Sometimes they don't say, I would like a determination, but you have to infer that. The question is asked, if a witness does blurt out incriminating conduct in their evidence, can the objection be raised by counsel at that time or is the opportunity in effect lost? It depends on the case. Remember, please, that the witness is not represented. So this scenario talks about a witness and not the accused. And so neither um, counsel, whether it's prosecution and um, the accused counsel, nor plaintiff defence counsel is representing the witness, they're just a witness. So they may not even have representation in court. So usually it's of the judge's own motion. Sometimes you see in a criminal case that the prosecution in the efforts to being a model litigant will mark an answer and say, Your Honour, I'm not sure that they were fully appraised of their rights under 128. Do you think you should certify that evidence? And it would be a discretionary uh, exercise. So that's the effect of 1283. And if a witness then um, boxes on and gives the answers, then you just add to your orders at the end of the day that a certificate needs to issue. So let's follow it that last little bit further down the decision tree. The witness has objected. The court has determined there are reasonable grounds. They've given the explanation under 1283. And the witness has said, no, I want a determination under 1284. Well, this is the last step that the judge needs to consider. It's a little subtle, so we'll just have a quick look at it. The court may require the witness give the evidence if the court is satisfied of two things. One is, in looking at the actual answers that give rise to a reasonable concern about privilege against self-incrimination, those answers don't expose the witness to risk overseas. So the first thing is, we're not at risk of making a witness answer questions that will implicate them overseas because forget the certificate, it's not going to protect a particular witness from overseas liability. So if there are any concerns that the answer will tend to incriminate them overseas, that has to be the end of the analysis. But let's say the answers would only, only expose the witness to Australian liability, whether it's criminal or civil. The next part of the 1284 analysis is the judge forming a view as to whether the interests of justice require that the witness give the evidence. So that's the last part of the analysis. The judge has encountered a scenario where there are reasonable grounds, where they've given the blurb that they don't need to give the answers. The witness has still claimed their privilege. The judge on further analysis has found that the liability is Australian and not overseas. And the last part of the calculus is making sure that the interests of justice require that the witness give the evidence. If all of those parts are satisfied, the judge says, I'm going to require you to give the evidence and I will give you a certificate. Or if the upshot of the 1283 test is the uh, rights have been explained to the witness and they've determined that they're going to give the evidence anyway, then a certificate follows. So moving on to slide five, we've just got some last bits and pieces to deal with under this section. 
note, please, the effect of the Certificate 1287 in any proceeding in a Victorian court, the certified answers can't be used against the person. And evidence of what's called any information, document or thing obtained as a direct or indirect consequence of the answers also can't be used against the person. So it is a use protection and what we call a derivative use protection. So in that situation, a witness could disclose hypothetically that they'd committed a murder and not only would the admissions of murder not be admissible against the person, but also any evidence or intelligence gathered from those answers would not be admissible against the person in any Victorian proceedings. And lastly, to note subsection 10, this doesn't apply to the accused in a criminal case. They have the ultimate privilege against self-incrimination, which is they don't have to give evidence in the first place. So the focus of 128 is squarely a witness, not the accused in a criminal case. The situation involving the accused under 128 subsection 10 only applies to questions in relation to the charged offence. So the accused, if they choose to give evidence, can be asked questions about the charged offence. They can't be asked questions about um, matters collateral to the, the charged offence. So taking the murder, for example, the accused couldn't claim the privilege in relation to questions to do with the charged murder, but could claim the privilege if they were then asked questions about some unassociated rape or unassociated drug deal. If they were asked those questions, they could legitimately claim the privilege. All right, so just some last little policy bits and pieces. That um, set of provisions will cover off the heart of privilege against self-incrimination cases and the balance would require you to apply those sections to the facts of the case. The very helpful synthesis and analysis uh, relates to the changes from the common law position, um, which I've already foreshadowed which is the fact that at common law there was a very binary outcome to those sorts of considerations. And pausing there, you can see, that um, going back to the original discussion about competing public policies, that the common law very much favoured the privilege to the exclusion of the court receiving relevant information. The way that the Evidence Act works, as I've mentioned, is a little bit more nuanced. It has those two binary outcomes, but then it also has a third where in a relevant case where the interests of justice require, then there is that third option. Question, is there any requirement to raise the history of the common law or is it okay to just focus on the statutory rules in the exam? The answer is please just focus on the statutory rules. And the reason is if time allows, you then need to go on and consider how those statutory rules apply to the facts of the particular example. So as far as the way that marks fall, it's the same as any other exam. The examiners are looking for a detailed consideration and application of um, how the law applies to the facts that are cited in front of you. So if time allows, it should be further factual analysis rather than further common law evaluation. Good. I think that that's answered all of the questions. I only mention it to you for context and also I mention it to you because while you're synthesising the law and while you're looking at past papers, you can include whatever you want. As time goes on, you'll become battle-hardened warriors and you'll just be um, able to extract what the current law is. 
Um, the last point to note is that typically uh, cases don't need to be cited. I don't know if that situation has changed. You'll need to wait for an announcement from the chief examiner in the traditional seminars that he gives about uh, the exam and uh, the relevant uh, assessment principles. But where the book was uh, semi where the exam was semi closed book, there was no need to refer to cases because you wouldn't have had cases in front of you. Indeed, the examiner has always said you don't even need to refer to relevant statutory provisions by name. This is one area where I have to say to you, it does make the exam examiner's job a lot easier if you've actually narrated the relevant sections, especially where they're so germane to practice, like section 128 relating to privilege against self-incrimination. I can't help but suggest, even though I agree that you wouldn't need to name the common law cases, you wouldn't need to name the common law history or context, but make it easier for the examiners by mentioning the provisions by name for sure. All right, so under section eight, sorry, under slide eight, I've now extracted that problem solving methodology and just brought it to an end. So there needs to be the objection. There needs to be some connection between that um, objection and the consequence. It has to be a, a, an offence or a civil wrong under Australian law or an overseas offence. Then there needs to be that blurb given by the trial judge. Some witnesses will then accept the certificate without further adjudication. Some witnesses won't. So if the, witnesses, the witness doesn't and continues to claim their privilege under subsection four, um, the trial judge needs to evaluate those two steps of the test. If there's any risk that the answers will expose them to overseas liability, then they can't give a certificate and they can't force the witness to answer. If it's not that case, this next part of the test is that the interests of justice require the witness to give the evidence. So that would depend on a case-by-case -case analysis and the importance of the evidence. If a certificate issues, it protects them from other Victorian charge as a result of their answers. Okay, so any questions or comments, welcome. There's a further analysis of each of those provisions in the ensuing slides. Okay, so the last point for today's discussion and analysis is matters of state. Um, so it's referred to as matters of state privilege in the Evidence Act, and this is public interest immunity at common law. So as far as um, competing public interests, the public interest in favour of disclosure is always going to be the same, which is that the court strives to admit all relevant evidence. The public policy favouring exclusion of matters of state is that there is it's, there are considered notoriously to be some functions of government that shouldn't be um, freely disseminated by way of information and evidence. And the typical examples, which we'll go into in a moment, include organs of government such as cabinet deliberations. So that has notoriously been a sensitive topic that shouldn't be the subject of evidentiary consideration in spite of the countervailing uh, public policy in favour of admissibility. And the other classic example relates to police procedures. And there are some police procedures that are so sensitive that to reveal them into evidence for discussion, analysis, dissection would actually mean that those procedures lost their sensitivity so that lawyers would, there are concerns that people would become aware of sensitive procedures and they, uh, the police would lose their capacity to use them. Likewise, in relation to the identity of police informants, informers, exactly as you would expect, the concept 
that if a person um, gave information to police, they have a reasonable expectation, as the police does, possibly as the court does, although that needs adjudication, that their ident uh, identity will be kept discreet. So Section 130 of the Evidence Act is the relevant provision. In 130 subsection 1, is the, the one's attention is focused on the balancing exercise. This obliges uh, bar exam candidates, lawyers and judges to focus on the two competing public interests. One is the public interest in admitting into evidence information or a document that relates to matters of state. So note to self, you're going to have to identify what in the circumstances of the particular case is the public interest in admitting that evidence. And on the other hand, outweighed by the public interest in preserving secrecy or confidentiality in relation to the information or document. So 130 subsection 1 requires, in application to the facts of the case, resolution of the competing public interests, the public interest in admitting into evidence information or a document that relates to matters of state. So is it a criminal case? Would that information actually exculpate the accused? Try to find with some specificity what the public interest is in admitting that evidence. On the other hand, the public interest in preserving secrecy or confidentiality in relation to the information or document. So on the other hand, what is it about this particular case that requires preservation of secrecy or confidentiality? The judge has a discretion in relation to those matters and it's an absolute core principle in this area. The claim by government is not final and the trial judge must lean in and consider what exactly those competing public interests are. So continuing subsection 4 of 130 without limiting the circumstances in which information or a document may be taken to relate to matters of state, the sorts of matters that will raise this privilege are documents or answers that might prejudice security, defence or international relations, or C, prejudice the prevention, investigation or prosecution of an offence. That's where I'm talking about subtle investigative techniques. Or it could disclose or enable a person to ascertain the existence or identity of a confidential source. So that's another um, classic example where this privilege is claimed, where the identity of an informer might become known if the privilege wasn't upheld. And next, how do we calculate that balancing exercise? So where does the calculus lie? 130 subsection 5 are the types of matters that the court must balance. So if you were to receive a matters of state um, situation, you'd raise 130 subsection 1 and those competing public policies. You'd identify exactly what head of matters of state privilege was claimed and what the public policy is about that. And in the circumstances of the particular case, why the information or evidence is acutely relevant. And then the 130 subsection 1 discretion is balanced by reference to each of these factors in 130 subsection 5. So the court is to take into account matters including the importance of the information or the document in the proceeding. In a criminal proceeding, if it's um, sought to be adduced by an accused, especially if it goes to um, a matter in exculpation, then that becomes very relevant. Um, the nature of the offence, cause of action or defence, and so on and so forth.
5F is a subtle point, which is more useful perhaps for practice than it is necessarily for the bar exam. In some cases, if the evidence can't be made known to the accused, it might even result in a stay or the proceedings not being able to continue. So that would be a matter that the court would need to take into account. So they're the relevant factors that would inform an answer if it were to raise matters of state. Um, my reading of past exams is that this has never been evaluated. Most of the past exams either evaluate one or both of privilege against self-incrimination and client legal privilege. So that is perhaps where you can focus uh, your efforts if time allow like leisurely time allows, but matters of state is still relevant and accessible. The last um, couple of comments to bridge the common law back uh, to the Evidence Act, as I've discussed. So it's uh, essentially a restatement of the common law public interest immunity. There aren't too many differences between the Evidence Act provision and the old common law of the public interest immunity, except for the name. For some reason, it's been renamed uh, Matters of State to focus the court's attention, to focus the party's attention on the public purpose against disclosure. But as the slide points out, um, this is slide 21, the Evidence Act provides a non-exhaustive formulation to balance the competing interests. So it's still very much informed by the old common law. And lastly, principles applicable. These have, are a restatement, a really helpful editorial summary and restatement of the principles applicable to the claim for public interest immunity most of which I've gone through. Note, in case it was too subtle, that when it comes to a criminal case, when it comes to the prospect that the accused might be exculpated or part of their defence might be advanced by the document, that tends to be given special weight. That concludes the discussion of the two privileges that we're going to look at today. So in our next discussion, we're going to look at the um, last principle examinable privilege which will be client legal privilege, that's going to take some time. And then the comparatively large task of looking at credibility, the rules of uh, admissibility and exclusion. So I'll thank you very much for your attendance. Thank you for listening to the Head to the Bar podcast. For outlines, links to resources and other downloads, please refer to the show notes.